come back to Hebrews 11 next week. I was thinking about something this week, and I wanted to kind of share with it. You know, you think about as a disciple of Jesus, there is a, a high level of devotion demanded of us from Jesus. Right? Jesus said in order to be his disciples, we had to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow him. Jesus said if we loved anyone or anything more than we loved him, we couldn't be his disciples. Jesus once told a, a suffering church that what they were suffering for his name was about to get worse, but they were to be faithful unto death. Jesus once asked why we would bother to call him Lord if we weren't going to go ahead and do the things he said us said for us to do. The New Testament authors elaborated on these teachings of Jesus to show the extraordinary level of devotion Jesus demands. They explained those who were saved by Jesus must be obedient to Jesus. Those who were saved by Jesus must live differently than they did before they were saved. Those who were saved by Jesus must live differently than the world around them, the unbelieving world around them. Those who have been saved by Jesus must make holiness a priority because Jesus is holy. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Those who have been saved by Jesus must offer their lives as living sacrifices. Those who have been saved by Jesus must endure hardship as good soldiers for Jesus. That's just a, a small sampling of what's expected of us as disciples of Jesus. These are high commands and they are not easily fulfilled. Now, as a general rule, people are okay with doing hard things or meeting high demands so long as they know the payoff is worth it in the end. Most people routinely do hard things that place high demands on them because they know the payoff is worth it at the end. People start their own businesses. They start and finish college. They join the military and serve in the military. They get married and they stay married. They have and raise children. Many number of other things. And each of those activities has its own level of difficulty associated with it. Uh, and each of these activities has their own sorts of high demands that go along with them. But people do them because they know what they receive at the end is, is going to be worthwhile. So this brings up the question. With the high demands of following Jesus, what is the payoff? Is it worth doing all the things Jesus has called on us to do? Because being a disciple of Jesus requires us to do or to at least try to do all the things I mentioned and more. What do we receive from Jesus that makes this hard so worth it? Uh, what makes the salvation Jesus gives us something we would give ourselves back in return? Because that's the key, right? Jesus saves us and so we do. We don't do those things to be saved. We don't do those things to earn His favor, to earn His grace, to earn acceptance. It's because we have been accepted. We have been saved. We have received His favor, and so we do. So what is this salvation that makes it so great we would do the hard of these other things? Well, that's what I want to talk about tonight. So open your Bible to Hebrews 2. <clears throat> We're going to look at the first four verses and then talk about why salvation is so great. So uh, if you find that, go ahead and stand on the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every violation and act of disobedience brought a just punishment, how shall we escape 
if we neglect so great a salvation. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was heard, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with him, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. The title of the message tonight is Why Salvation is So Great. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us tonight as we look at your word. We would take to heart what we learn. And we would have a better appreciation of the salvation you have given us. Better appreciation of what Christ has done. And let this be something that encourages us, Lord. Father, sometimes it's good to just be reminded of of what has been done for us through Jesus. and, And how great this salvation is. Lift up our eyes to see this. Let this enlarge our hearts and flood our souls with peace and joy at what you have done. Fill me tonight with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That I would speak your word and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, of course, Hebrews was written to a discouraged group of Jewish disciples who were thinking about giving up on their on Jesus and returning to Judaism. They're suffering deep persecution and considering <clears throat> returning. The author of Hebrews pushes back against this by reminding them Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus' sacrifice is greater than all the sacrifices of the law. Jesus is greater. And anything we suffer in the name of Jesus is worth it because in the end we get Jesus. This is the overarching point of Hebrews. Where we pick it up, the author has just reminded them that Jesus is greater than the angels and Jesus is greater than Moses. Now since Jesus is greater... He says we must pay closer attention to the things we have heard, the truths we have heard. And he says if we don't do this, we will begin to drift away. Now, both of those phrases, pay close attention, drift away, are significant in the passage. Pay close attention is, I don't know, it's stronger than what the English translations give it. It's not, hey, you ought to pay attention to this. It is... Pay attention, this is important. When I was in the army and we would have classes, um, if the teacher was trying to emphasize something, they would often stomp their foot, right? Uh, And I don't know why that was the thing they did, but when they did that, we knew that was something that was going to be on the test later. This was an important point. That's sort of what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's clapping his hands. He's stomping his foot. He's saying, pay attention. But then he gives us the reason why we're to pay attention. Because if we don't pay attention, we drift away. Right? If we don't pay attention to the truth that has been revealed to us, we begin to drift away from it. And, and the picture of drifting away is one I believe should haunt us. Because it's not a picture of great and decisive steps away from Jesus. Instead, it is a slow but continual drift. The the Greek word used there often carried with it the idea of neglect. So not so much we, I'm through with Jesus and I'm not going to read the Bible, it's not God's word, and, and I'm going the other direction, as getting caught up in so many other things that we don't pay the heed, we don't give it the attention we should, and without giving it the attention we should, we begin to to drift away. A, a slow, steady drift. Now, the reason there's a slow, steady drift away if we're not paying careful attention is because the life Jesus calls us to is against the flow. 
Right? It's, it's like walking upstream. We, we, as we follow Jesus, as we pay careful attention to His Word, we are walking against the flow of the world. The world isn't telling us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. The world is saying, do what makes you happy. But the world isn't saying, be a living sacrifice. The world is saying, you're number one. The world isn't saying, be faithful to anything unto death. The world is saying, do what's easy. The world isn't saying, turn the other cheek. The world is saying, you strike before they strike. The world isn't saying, love your enemies. The world is saying, hate those who hate you and love those who love you so long as they love you. Right. So everything about being a disciple of Jesus is going against the flow. And if we aren't paying careful attention, we stop going against the flow and we start going with the flow. Here's how Pastor John Piper describes this. We must remember this. There is no standing still in the Christian life. Either we are advancing towards salvation or we are drifting away to destruction. There are two possibilities in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. Either we give heed to the word of the Lord or we drift away from it. There is no sitting still in the river of indifference. Its current runs downstream to the falls. Therefore, verse 3 asks, how shall we escape God's just retribution if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglecting our great salvation means not giving heed to what has been revealed by the Son. Not setting our attention on Jesus. And the result will be drifting away from the Word and therefore from salvation. Now, one of the ways I think about this, you've probably heard me use this story before on drifting away is on doing land navigation in the army. Land navigation, they drop you out in the middle of nowhere, they give you a set of grid coordinates, and you find yourself on the map, and then you have to use those grid coordinates and other grid coordinates they give you to find different posts along the way. And in order to find the different posts along the way, most of the time it's literally posts. There are There's 150 acres of Fort Campbell Woods, and somewhere out there there's a fence post with a dog tag on it that has a number. And so you have to use your grid coordinates and your map, or your map and your grid coordinates and your compass to get from where you are to where that fence post is. Now, I don't know if you've ever walked through the woods trying to find a specific thing, but you can't find a fence post and 150 acres of woods by walking in a generally northerly direction. Right? You have to walk in a very specific way. And if you're off even a little bit, you, you end up being off a lot. If you've ever looked at a compass, you know the, the tick marks, the degrees, are really, really close together. And you could think, well, if you're only off one tick mark, you can't make that big of a difference. But if you're off one degree and you walk a thousand meters, you're a hundred meters off of where you want it to be. Now, a hundred meters may not sound like a big area, but when you're looking for a fence post with a dog tag on it, a hundred meters is a lot of wrong ground. And, and that is <clears throat> what happens in our spiritual life. It is a lot like land navigation. That In land navigation, you have a particular point you want to get where you want to arrive. You have a, a, a map and a compass that leads you there, and you have to follow them exactly if you want to find it. In our spiritual lives, 
there is a particular place we're wanting to get, right? Ultimately, we want to go to heaven. Well, we have a, a guidebook, we have a compass, and it tells us the specific directions we're supposed to take. And if we aren't carefully following it, we, we drift. Now, part of what makes the drift in land navigation so such a dangerous thing is all of us drift. If you were to just go out into the woods and start walking, no matter how it felt to you, you most likely would not walk in a straight line. You would drift to the right or to the left. Every human has a natural area that they drift when they walk if they're not intentional about walking. I, my right leg is shorter than my left leg, so my right drift is really, really bad. I can walk in a circle thinking I'm walking straight because of how badly I drift. Your drift probably may not be that bad, but you drift. In a similar way, spiritually, we drift. We have within us our sinful nature that is leading us to drift, that is pulling us away. And if we aren't paying extra careful attention to the azimuth God has given us in His Word, we will begin to drift away. And a little bit adds up over time. A little drift today is a little drift tomorrow and a little drift the day after until eventually we have drifted really, really far away from our Lord. Probably all of us know someone who at one point in their lives was a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus, but they're not today. And if we know them well, we would say, well, it wasn't, I mean, they didn't just wake up one day and decide they were done. There was a little bit here and there was a little bit there. And over time, though, that little bit here, that little bit there, it added up until years later, they're really, really, really far from where they, they once were. The little steps add up over time. So we have to pay the closer attention so we don't drift away. And then in verse 3 is where we're really building to. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And this is what we're wanting to not drift away from. We don't want to drift away from the so great salvation that has been given to us. Because when we drift from God's word, when we drift from Jesus, we drift away from the salvation. This so great a salvation. And, and there is always a danger. There is always a potential for any one of us to drift. There are none of us so solidly committed to Christ right now, we could not drift away. We have to give the more careful attention. And this happens as we carelessly neglect. That's what it says. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, what I want to talk about tonight is the phrase, so great a salvation. Because I think the neglect... And the drift happens because we forget how great our salvation is. So what I, I want to remind us tonight is the greatness of our salvation. And there's only one aspect of it I'm going to talk about tonight. This could be a, a sermon series all its own. But tonight we're just looking at one, one reason our salvation is so great. Salvation frees us from the penalty of sin. Now, this is obviously probably the most familiar thing about Salvation we know. Salvation forget, uh, frees us from the penalty of sin. 
Now, of course, we're familiar with Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Every sin earns the just wage of death. Uh, The death earned through sin is not physical death or even what we might call spiritual death. It is eternal death. It, It is the second death is what the book of Revelation calls it. It is going to hell and suffering hell for all of eternity. Now, all of us have sinned. Therefore, all of us have earned this wage. So how do we escape the wage of not not Adam's sin, not the wage of somebody else's sin? How do we escape the wage of our sin so we don't face the wrath to come? The author of Hebrews says we can't escape this wrath if we neglect the so great a salvation. So what do we do? I mean, how do we escape the wrath and experience the so great a salvation? Well, of course, again, familiar. It's through Jesus. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Through him, Jesus, everyone who believes is free from all the things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, let me let me talk about cannot be freed from the law of Moses. The law of Moses there would speak of the, the Ten Commandments, the, which would be the moral aspects of God's law, as well as the ceremonial or the sacrificial commandments. Right. So God's law had certain moral commandments. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. We're familiar with the, the big tens, what I would often call them. And, and then all the ways it is lived out in our lives. So this is how you're to live in covenant with God. But then if you break covenant with God and you do one of the sins then there are ways to atone for that, to make sacrifices. And yet what the author of Hebrews here tells us is that the reality is the law of Moses never really freed anyone from their sins. So we can't keep the Ten Commandments and be righteous. That's what Romans 3 tells us. That the more we study the Ten Commandments, the more it becomes obvious we don't keep them. We fall short of them in one way or another. At the same time, the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews will tell us, cannot actually take away sin. All it did in the Old Testament was roll it back a year. It was this constant reminder, you've sinned and this thing is dead because you have sinned. It was meant to be this reminder of the the graveness, the seriousness, the danger of their sin. But, he says, In Jesus, there is forgiveness from all the things you could not be freed from under the law. See, the only way to be freed from the wages of our sin, it's not through being religious, like the ceremonial law. It's not through being moral, keeping the Ten Commandments. It is only by believing in Jesus Christ. Only by believing in Jesus are we freed from the terrible penalty of sin. Faith in what Jesus did on the cross, it it frees us. It forever frees us. And again, this is familiar. We probably know this. We've probably heard this multiple times. But what I want to remind us of tonight is how great this truth, this salvation really is. Like, how far removed are my sins from me? Well, according to the psalmist, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those that fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our wrongdoings from us. How far is the east 
from the West. Do the East and West ever meet? I mean, is there ever... It's forever removed from us. Think about that. Your sins, if you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forever removed from you. I mean, that is an amazing... Why are they removed that far from us? Because God is merciful. His mercy is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Right? And I like this passage. Who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoings and passes over rebellious act in the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again take pity on us. He will trample our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. God pardons our wrongdoings. Again, this is who is a God like you? The reality is there are no other gods like Yahweh. There is no other path of salvation like that which is provided through Jesus. Other gods either ignore sin and make no provision for them... Or you have to work them off by being really religious and doing all the right things. But not so with our God. Our God pardons sins. Our God does not retain His anger forever. Our God delights in mercy. He will take pity. And again, that day He will again. It's speaking to rebellious people. Micah is written to a people in the midst of rebelling against God. And in that to those people who are rebelling, God will again take pity. He will trample our wrongdoings. I, I love that. To me, that's a, and, and maybe this is probably because of I'm a guy, but that is a, a violent image of pummeling, beating, stomping. Our wrongdoings, our sins, our iniquities to death. I and tell you, I'm so tired of the sin in my life. I'm all about them being stomped plumbed to death. I love that image. And He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. They are gone forever. How gone are they? Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. Now, When it says God will no longer remember our sins, it doesn't mean it's wiped from the omniscient mind of God. God knows all things. He remembers what we've done. What it means is He doesn't bring them up any longer. Think about that. Do you you know someone? Are you this someone? You forgive someone, but later in a moment of anger... You bring up the past or they bring up the past. Well, you did that. You're such a terrible, right? It's not God. Once our sin is forgiven, it's never brought back up. God doesn't forgive us of our sin one day and then condemn us of it the very next. He forgives us and then it's no longer there. It's as though it is no longer there. And and there is a reason. There is a reason we don't offer the blood of bulls and goats in our churches anymore. The reason is there is forgiveness. It's finally been acquired through Jesus. And so the offerings all ceased. We don't bring animals in and cut their throats and burn them on the altar. Our altars are symbolic and not literal. We don't do that not because we're more enlightened. Not because we're in a better age. 
We don't do it because there has been an offering made and it was Jesus. And so the offering ceased. They're no longer required because a sacrifice has been made through faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The offerings are over. Our sins are no longer remembered. Our guilt is gone, forever gone. The New Testament says there is, or Romans says there is, therefore there is now, now, no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ. Now, what we see here is especially encouraging if you're familiar with the book of Romans. The last of Romans 7 ends with Paul saying, I don't understand myself. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those I do. And he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he thanks the Lord for Jesus Christ, his Savior. Therefore, because Jesus delivers us from that body of death, there is now no more any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, again, this is such a great verse. When, if if you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus Christ, when are you free from condemnation according to this verse? Now. Now. right? There's not some future version of you that's free from condemnation. Now you are free from condemnation. Right? Isn't that what it says? Not, Not I've got it all squared away and I've really got myself in order and so I... There's no condemnation. No, no. No, the person in Romans 7, 14-25 who laments his struggle with sin and owns the fact that he fails at times and hates the body of sin that he sees in his life, that person is now free from condemnation. The genuine believer in Jesus Christ is forever free. There is no condemnation at all. For them because of Jesus Christ. The genuine believer in Jesus Christ will not ever be judged as a sinner. They will never face the eternal wages of their sin. The believer in Jesus Christ is fully and forever freed from the penalty of sin and the condemnation of sin. Now, think about that. For a second. And let that sink into your hearts and your minds. Because what would it mean to you if there was really no condemnation for you because of Jesus? What would it mean to you if you knew for sure you were fully and forever free from the penalty of sin? Now, does this mean we don't sin? No, of course it doesn't mean that. The, the struggle in Romans 7, 14 through 25, still there. The Galatians 5, 17 struggle, the flesh, lust against the spirit, still there. The struggle is always there. Our sinful nature is always pulling at us. And sometimes we will win the struggle, hopefully more often than not. We will submit to the spirit, we will walk in the spirit, and we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But make no mistake, there will be times... 
When we choose wrongly, we will resist the Spirit. We will submit to the flesh and we will sin. Does that mean at that moment we're brought out of out of no condemnation into condemnation? Absolutely not. It absolutely does not mean that. Because at no point in time is our salvation based upon our performance. At every point from start to finish, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. That means is from start to finish, our salvation is based upon His performance, not our performance. Our salvation from start to finish is based upon His righteousness and not our righteousness. If our salvation was ever based upon us and our righteousness, we would never fully have a right standing with God. Think about it. How many days in your life have you gone in a sin-free time? Have you ever fully loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength for an entire day? Have you ever loved your neighbor as you love yourself perfectly for an entire day? Have you ever fully done good to those who hate you for an entire day? Have you ever gone a whole day totally denying yourself, totally taking up your cross, and totally following Jesus without ever choosing a selfish action. I have not. And if our salvation was based upon our actions, we would live in a constant state of fear. And sadly, I feel this is a way many people live. And this is why they they fail to understand their salvation is a so great salvation. I fear many people have bought into an idea that Jesus saves them and He puts them on a tightrope over the the mouth of hell and they have to kind of walk it perfectly. And, And the slightest misstep could lead them falling into hell for all of eternity. Now, to be perfectly honest... I believe in part, as free will Baptist, what we believe has caused this in some of us. We believe in the possibility of apostasy, that a genuine believer can cease to be a believer, can forfeit their salvation. Free will Baptists are a very conservative denomination and have always made holiness very, very important. And I believe our our teaching on the possibility of apostasy and the emphasis on holiness has unintentionally given the impression that people are walking a tightrope over hell. This is why well-known free will Baptist preachers have said things like, if you're driving down the road and you think a bad thought and you have a wreck, before you've had time to repent, you'll go straight to hell. What a miserable, miserable way to live. That is not what we believe as free will Baptists for one thing, and that is not the so great a salvation Jesus has given us. Now, let me be clear. I I do believe in the possibility of apostasy. And I do believe holiness is absolutely necessary in the life of a disciple of Jesus. But these truths cannot, must not, 
lay the unbiblical weight on a person to make them think they could lose their salvation at any moment. We have to balance the possibility of apostasy, the absolute necessity of holiness with confidence the Bible gives us in what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has freed us from condemnation. Now, if you can relate to that weight, that that feeling like you're walking on a, a tightrope, you probably struggle a lot. Your salvation is not always something you find great joy in. You live in fear. So what I want to do at the end of our service is I want to to teach you what has been called, one, one guy called a gutsy guilt. It's a strange name, but it'll make sense as we get into it. Gutsy guilt is where a disciple of Jesus admits he or she has done wrong, but does not succumb to the lie God has turned against them because of this sin. Gutsy guilt embraces what 1 John 2 tells us. At 1 John 2, 1 and 2. I've written these things to you that you not sin. There's the standard. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation. So, again, that, that verse is so wonderful. Don't sin. There's the standard. But what if you do? Is Jesus for you or against you in that moment as a disciple? He's for you. He is your advocate, even in that moment of sin. So I want to look at an Old Testament passage that that gives us a great illustration of a gutsy guilt. Turn to Micah, chapter 7, verse 7. It should be page 707 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to read verse 7 through 9, and then we'll talk about it. Micah writes, and he says, But as for me, I will be on the watch for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord, for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, enemy of mine. Though I fail, I will rise. Though I live in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will endure the rage of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will look at His righteousness. Now, the context of Micah, as I mentioned earlier, is the passage of the nation of Israel being chastised for their sins against God. And in this passage, Micah speaks as a representative of the entire nation. And as he speaks, we learn what it is to have a a gutsy guilt that can help us win those moments when we do give in to the flesh and we sin. First, he says in verse 8, he tells his enemies, do not rejoice over me. Now, the fact is, Satan, the enemy of our souls, absolutely rejoices when disciples of Jesus fall into sin. His scornful laughter is often what keeps us beat down in condemnation. Because Satan is a master of manipulation. So when it comes to temptation, he knows what to do. He holds out the bait of what we are most tempted to give in to, whatever that may be. And as the bait is out there, he whispers, that's not a big deal. Nobody will know. Surely God won't care about something that small. You, you won't get in over your head. All of these things to, to minimize the severity of the sin. And then 
We believe him and we we bite down on it. And as soon as we bite down, he, he flips the script and he says, how could you do that? You know God said not to do that. After all Jesus has done for you, you're horrible. God's done with you. You, don't, you know God doesn't want you to come back. You might as well just lay down and die and give up. Why ask for forgiveness? You're just going to fail again. You're a pathetic excuse for a Christian. Anybody ever hear those sort of things when you give in to the flesh? I know I did. Satan is rejoicing in our defeat and our failure in those times. And if we believe his lies, hope and joy are destroyed. We're, we're going to stay down if we believe that. But Micah doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, he goes on and says, don't rejoice over me, enemy of mine. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I live in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. We have to learn to say what Micah said. Yes, I've fallen. I hate what I've done. I despise the dishonor I've brought to God's name. I regret the damage I've done to my relationship with Jesus. But understand this. I will not always stay here. I will not always be here. I will not always be defeated. I will rise. And I will go back to following Jesus. That's a gutsy guilt. But it, it doesn't minimize what's been done. This doesn't blow off the sin as though it were no big deal. It fully acknowledges our sin, our failure, but it looks beyond. Because that sin is not the final statement on our lives. It looks beyond and says, I will not always be here. Micah goes on and he confesses he's in the darkness. And I think darkness, I think it's probably meaning he's miserable. Right? He, he is miserable. We know from verse 9 he's enduring the rage of the Lord. So there's consequences that have come into his life. So that this, this may happen. We, we sin, we blow it, we in darkness, we feel miserable, we feel guilty. We feel guilty because we are guilty. We have legitimately done wrong. But even though we're in the darkness, even though we feel miserable, God is for us. We are in the darkness at the moment, but, but there is a light in the darkness and it is the Lord. The same God we have sinned against does not abandon us and leave us there. He comes to us in our darkness and he leads us back out. Verse 9, I, I endure the rage of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Again, I have sinned against Him. So in that moment, I, I will endure consequences. I will endure the chastising. I will reap what I've sown, but only until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me into the light and I will look at His Righteousness. God won't leave us there. The same God we have sinned against comes for us. The Savior who died is our advocate with the Father who pleads our case. Who has taken our justice. Who brings us out of the darkness into the light. We will see His righteousness. A gutsy guilt 
rejects the lies, the satanic lie God has given up on us. A gutsy guilt rejects the satanic lie that our right standing with God is ever at any point based upon our performance. And it embraces the reality that our right standing is always based upon Jesus' righteousness. Gutsy guilt allows those who have been redeemed by Jesus and and only those who have been redeemed by Jesus to stand and say, yes, I've sinned, but Jesus is my advocate with the Father. And because of Jesus, my God will forgive me and my God will restore me. If we get a hold of a gutsy guilt, it will bring such joy and freedom into our lives. We will never be the same. If we get a hold of a gutsy guilt, we will never walk around beat down and beat up over our sins. If we understand a gutsy guilt and the so great of salvation we have, we'll never again believe we're walking a tightrope over the mouth of hell, fearing the slightest misstep will lead us spiraling into eternal damnation. If we get a hold of a gutsy guilt and the greatness of our salvation, we will rejoice in the glory of the gospel. And if we understand a gutsy guilt and the so great of salvation, we will never again neglect it. We will give the more earnest attention and we will do everything we have we can to keep from drifting away from Jesus. Understanding our so great salvation and the gutsy guilt it gives us drives us in our service and devotion to Jesus. That there is a freedom that comes from serving Jesus because I, He loves me and I love Him and He has saved me and not I want to earn His love Not, I want to do enough good deeds so that I can say I'm saved. I want to do enough good deeds to to stay saved. The freedom to live for Jesus because of Jesus is significant. And if we ever truly understand the greatness of our salvation, the gutsy guilt it gives us, we, we begin to live in that kind of a freedom. The high bar Jesus sets for how we're supposed to live, we'll always acknowledge it's a high bar. But we'll also know it's it's worth it. Because we get Jesus. And we understand how great that truly is. There are always going to be times where we blow it. And there is no biblical way to minimize the seriousness of our sin. However, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, our failures are never the final word about our lives and our relationship to Him. Never let sinful failures cause you to neglect your so great salvation and drift from Jesus. Muster a gutsy guilt. Confess your sin. Trust Jesus. And move out in service and devotion to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and devotion. We want so much to live the way we should. Help us, O God, to have the, the understanding that there is right now, at this moment, 
no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. There's not a future version of us where Jesus is our advocate. There's us where Jesus is our advocate. There's not a future version of us where there's no condemnation for us. There is this version of us where there is no condemnation for us because of Jesus. Father, we struggle and we feel the weight of our sin. And that's good. The struggle is important. The weight of sin is important. But it can't be the only weight. It can't be all there is. Help us to be able to muster up a gutsy guilt and say, though I've fallen, I'll not stay here. Because you are going to come to us. You're going to come in the darkness and you're going to lead us out. Thank you for Jesus being the author, the finisher of our faith, that everything is dependent upon Him. Let us understand this. Let us live in that freedom we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.